Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Ticket Podcast, brought to you in partnership with PulseByPublic.com, providing tools for IR teams to engage with retail shareholders. I'm your host, Noemi Di Stefano. Coming up on the show this month, we talk to a number of ESG experts about the growing regulatory and market demands in the space. As the momentum behind ESG continues to grow in the context of global market volatility and continued supply chain disruptions, companies in Europe, the US and around the world face new challenges and needs to respond to these demands. Businesses are expected to tailor their responses in a way that also meets the short and medium-term financial needs of their firms and investors. In this episode, we talk about ESG priorities in 2023, new pressures facing companies around biodiversity, and we also share some practical advice around scope 1, 2 and 3 reporting. But first, we hear from the IR Magazine team about some of the key highlights from our first event of the year, the ESG Integration Forum Europe, which took place in London earlier this month. Shortly after the event, Editor-in-Chief James Beach sat down for a chat with event organizers and panelists to discuss key takeaways from the forum. And this is coming up now on the Ticker Podcast. I'm delighted to be joined here at the ESG Integration Forum Europe 2023 with three key members of the IR Magazine and Corporate Secretary team who were integral in putting this show together. We have on the event side Steve Wade, uh, Lawrence Taylor, and from editorial I'm joined by Pema Visavadia, reporter for IR Magazine and Corporate Secretary. Welcome all. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, great to be here today. Good to be here. It's been a fascinating day, full of uh, research, insights, comments. Let me ask you, each of you, Steve, to start with, what have been the highlights of the insights you've heard today? Which have been the surprises? Yeah, it's it's quite interesting because what's unique about this event is the real mix of um, attendees and people that we've got speaking. But across the board, one thing that's really sort of surprised me is that... There's been so much at this European event, there's been so much conversation about the US and the influence that the ISSB, the SEC um, and those sort of regulations are going to have on um, on companies in Europe. Um, one of our first panellists, Mark Babington, who's obviously from the regulatory side, kind of highlighted, you know, capital is global. And obviously with the size of the US, everyone sort of takes notice. So so that's one thing for me that, that, that really sort of stood out. Um, I think two other things is there's been this real sense of almost sitting up and waking up to greenwashing, but we've also heard this new concept around green hushing. Um, and people are trying to get that balance between, okay, how much do I shout about what it is that we're doing and put out all of that information that helps people make good decisions around your company 
versus is there a, a little bubbling under the surface of some reluctance to put information out there as a result of this anti-ESG narrative once again that's sort of been um, rising in America and is, is kind of spreading as well. So a real sort of closing doors moment I guess for for the ESG as a whole. Hammer, how about yourself? What were your big takeaways from today's forum? Well I think today as a whole went really well. I was I was really impressed with the roundtables. I think the level of engagement and the discussions held, especially with with such a group of people like the ones we had today, really showed that ESG is really at the forefront of of the IRO and corporate governance mind. Um, what I would say was most surprising was, again, to echo what Steve said, was this idea of green hushing. In the data session that I monitored, there was a lot of conversation around this. And when there was a poll of, is this something that people are actually worried about, even though this is such a big issue currently, in the room, surprisingly, only a few people put up their hand as saying this is something that they're actually concerned about. So that was really surprising for me. Lawrence, you're the man who put this show together. Tell us what really stood out for you. Yeah, last event we were all talking about standing by your commitments and we were even talking about not the risk of over-disclosing and those conversations were still happening. For the first time, there was this sense of, you know, of companies actually, in order to combat that, creating a new problem where they're not saying enough. And even though you're right, there weren't many people who put their hand up during the poll to say that we're guilty of this. You have to be cautious of... Uh, of those kind of polls sometimes and I think that yeah that maybe some people are cautious about how cautious they're being yeah definitely that was a new new term that we saw we also talked more about social this year in the context of worker rights and and company purpose and did I I hear social washing is that a thing now yeah that was the other uh, the other good buzzword of the day what does it mean though I I think it's in the same way greenwashing is not standing it's companies perceived to you know say they're going to do one thing and reduce their emissions to an extent, whatever it happens to be on the E of ESG and then not living up to it, social washing is the same thing for the S of ESG. So companies purporting to be these great bastions of, of worker rights and employee engagement and, and when you look at the results or you look at well, this came up a lot, employee feedback being a really crucial metric of this. When you go into the details of this, it's actually not the, the picture they're painting. So that, that was another interesting one. Let me ask each of you, what were your favourite questions that you heard that really stood out as well from the audience that we had? There's a clear winner in my mind. We, we ran a session that focused on how to get your board on board. So it's really looking at managing your uh, board of directors and making sure that there's sufficient oversight and my favorite slightly conceptual but unloaded question was from the audience who said do we need someone on the board that is an ESG skeptic do we need someone that can provide that balanced view um, in terms of preventing groupthink having someone that can really play that devil's advocate and uh, present the other side of the story which I thought was really interesting um, and we did sort of joke saying what would the job description like that look like you know, sort of wanted climate change denier for a board position. But um, no, I think, I think it's, it's interesting and it gets into that thing around preventing groupthink and that sort of stuff. So, so that was definitely one for me. Want to remember indeed. Emma, any favourite questions that you heard in the hall? I think there were potentially two. There was one, again, on the regulation side. A gentleman asked 
pretty straightforwardly, what is it that the regulator is looking for? And I think something as basic as that is in sometimes quite a complicated question because there are many things, many outcomes you wish, but that was a, a very memorable question. And then I think my second one would be during one of the earlier sessions, someone asked, should there be an additional letter to the ESG acronym, which is D for data, and whether or not this should be another focus point. So those would be my two. Yeah, certainly the first one cut to the chase, didn't it? That was a yeah, whole dissertation right there, never mind a, a conference question. And I remember, yeah, the, the D for data, ESGD. I'm not too sure that really flew in the hall. I think some people talked about it going under governance. But that's a, another question for another time. Lawrence, tell us your standout questions. Yeah, mine would either be the, should you have a climate change denier on your board to encourage diversity of thought question. That's both my favorite and least favorite question, actually. The other one, we had a biodiversity panel and one question was kind of acknowledging how difficult it is with the with how, how difficult companies are under-resourced are in dealing with the TCFD already so they simply asked you know we're struggling with TCFD why, why should we care about TNFD or something along those lines and I think that's an important thing to bear in mind the response was really reassuring though because the good news is that your approach to TCFD reporting provides a really helpful foundation for how you're going to report according to TNFD given the, the, the crossover between climate and nature that was discussed as well. So that's reassuring. When asked how many people are doing TNFD reporting right now, only one, you only saw one hand go up. Um, that was all in terms of right now. I think though the TNFD is being finalized in this latest year, around November. When asked in the next two to three years, we saw a few more hands go up. And I think each time we do this event and ask that question, we'll, we'll get more and more hands. But um, yeah. It's obviously a challenge. TCFD is difficult enough for a smaller company, but that is a great starting point to then start thinking about how you report quantity NFD as well. Fantastic. And then just final question around the mic on site at the forum. Thinking ahead and to all the corporates and IROs listening, what advice would you give them as a bit of a steer for direction this coming year? Absolutely. No, I, th I think that's a great question, especially in terms of what advice companies can kind of take away from this. It's interesting when you're on the other side of the mic because I ban people from saying, you've got to look at your own company and make your own decisions. So I won't, I won't use that one as well. I do think that one thing that sort of turned up is around the level of disclosure you should be looking for. So we actually ran a poll, didn't we, Lawrence, in terms of asking people, a very binary choice, you know, should you be aiming for the highest possible level of disclosure? Is that what you're aiming for right now? Or are you trying to remain compliant? And I think if I can advise companies on one thing, it's about really understanding where you sit on that scale as well. Because you don't want to go too far down a rabbit hole of setting up systems for ESG disclosure and then the regulations change or the goalposts change. But also, you don't want to under-report, coming back to this concept of green hushing. You want to be able to provide relevant, consistent, good quality data to investors, to all of your stakeholders, to make sure that they can make informed decisions. So I would say, find your level in terms of what it is and how much you disclose. That's great advice. Lawrence, Steve mentioned a poll. Could you tell us what the results of that poll were? And also, yeah, your, your thoughts. What are your takeaways from this event that are going to inform your future ESG integration forums? I think I can remember. It was something along the lines of 
I mean, the majority was people saying in the room that they report to the highest possible standards. It was about 67%, 68%. And, and then the rest were, were saying they report to the current standards. That's really interesting because, as I said earlier, around the problems that smaller companies are facing with you know, the macroeconomic conditions and, and the difficulty of investing in, uh, in very proactive Cisco ESG reporting, um, I think you have to take it with a pinch of salt because, of course, these are you know, ESG leaders in the room, a lot of them, and it'd be interesting to you know, take this to, to a broader poll, um, one of our non-ESG events perhaps, and see what the results are there and see how different they are. But it's reassuring, of course, to see companies are, yeah, are being very proactive with this, just as Steve said, and as Mark Babington said during the regulation panel, you don't want to be in a situation where you're unpicking yourself from a suboptimal position later on if you've, if you've aimed for a standard that then changes. And so much is changing right now. Absolutely. Mark Babington advised us, I think, on stage, don't get ahead of regulations, don't anticipate, just go what's been black and white, readily available to benchmark against. And I think it's going to be interesting when IR Magazine and Corporate Secretary upsticks and heads over to the West Coast. We've got right here in, in UK, Europe, pressures from the cost of living, supply chain issues from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That's more front of mind from talking to folk here, never mind any perceived anti-woke feeling. So I suspect that the feelings on those scores will be flipped right over uh, at the other end. Uh, supply chain issues perhaps less of a concern for your average West Coast IRO, I'm guessing. But yeah, they'll be more, a bit more sensitive to which way the political winds are blowing in terms of, of ESG. But then that also leads me to your impressions, Hammer, as well, because on the round table that I was on, there seems to be a lot of confusion still in this day and age what ESG actually means. Something of a, something of a catch-all, I think that might be prevalent in the US, um, and it gets all mixed up with all of that political goings-on. What was your impressions as well in terms of the takeaways that IROs need to apply going into the rest of 2023? I would say my advice would be to think beyond climate. I think ESG is such a, a broad term that being able to look beyond just that, the first E, for example, I think that was also something that kept coming up in conversation is that there may have been too much focus on just the E, but also, you know, the S and the G, they are also equally as important. So yeah, just think beyond climate. Great advice. Thank you so much, Hammer, Steve, Lawrence. That's a wrap from us, IR Magazine and Corporate Secretary, live on site at the ESG Integration Forum. Thanks very much, and do check out the events page and subscribe to find out more details and register. Companies are always looking to build stronger relationships with current and potentially new investors. If you are a public company, Pulse by public.com can help you build deeper relationships with your investors. Share your company narrative with innovative formats. Make investor information more discoverable. Reach retail investors where they're already engaged and much more. Pulse by public.com helps IR teams engage their retail shareholders, amplify company communications and gain actionable insights into retail investor audiences. Visit public.com slash pulse to schedule a free demo. And we're back. Thanks for listening to the Ticket Podcast with me, Noemi Di Stefano.
In December last year, the United Nations Biodiversity Conference, COP15, in Montreal, gathered governments from around the world to agree on a new set of goals to guide global action through to 2030. The purpose? To halt and reverse nature loss. Over 200 countries worldwide committed to protect biodiversity in the years ahead. Despite those commitments, however, many believe more concrete action is needed. They say companies need to develop their commitments to biodiversity and integrate nature into decision-making. We spoke to Edith Kiss, Chief Investment Officer at Revalue Nature, a company which focuses on developing nature-based projects at a global scale. First, we asked her how biodiversity is different from climate. It's very different <laughs> for to start with. Obviously, again, biodiversity and nature is, is, is an important part of the climate solutions. So there is definitely interlinkages. But as we discussed a lot around metrics, it's, it's very hard to grasp with a, a similar single metrics like CO2 for, for a CO2 equivalent for climate. Biodiversity is living, uh, it's nature, it's, it's people, it's uh, animals, it's species. So it's, it's so diverse that it's, it obviously we can't uh, make it uh, to justice to simplify with one simple metrics. But that shouldn't be the excuse for inaction. We have a lot of uh, progress in this, in this area. We have now uh, much more uh, knowledge, scientific, technological, technical, to quantify and start measuring and, and expressing it from... 10 years ago, when we could only uh, talk about habitats and hectares, now we have much more data on actual species, uh, diversity and abundance and ecosystem integrity. Those are kind of the, the topics that you need to consider uh, when you talk about biodiversity. So yeah, it's, it's more complex, so it can be a bit daunting, but it's also something that is actually even more urgent than climate. We, we really need to uh, halt and reverse uh, nature loss and biodiversity loss by 2030 uh, in order to to actually have any chance to fight climate change and, and not to lose the species on the planet. So, yeah, so there, it's very different, but, but there are interlinkages and we should build on that. But how much does biodiversity matter to investors today? So it's, uh, again, it's an emerging topic. Uh, this was the first COP where uh, there was a, uh, a dedicated finance day. So invest, it's, it's on the investor's agenda. I would even say there were more investor enthusiasm than around the COP27 uh, in, uh, in, in the climate negotiations. So definitely investors are looking at it, again, also from an opportunity perspective, how to transform our financial systems and, and corporates need that, companies need that. We need collaboration. It's a, it's a massive problem. It's a, uh, nobody can solve this alone. So investors will be required to help companies with the transition, uh, transitioning them from nature ne uh, negative to nature positive and, and working together on the business case, working together on, on the investment opportunities. Um, and it's already happening, I think. So again, the, the good thing is that the partnership is key collaboration between public, private, domestic, international companies, investors and civil society. While biodiversity gains ground, investors and stakeholders are increasingly moving away from a tell-me environment to a show-me environment. What this means is that the need for accurate, transparent and comparable data on organizations' carbon footprint, diversity and equity performance, executive compensation and more is becoming stronger. 
Regulators continue to keep the financial community on its toes. Most recently, for example, the International Sustainability Standards Board, ISSB, announced its standards issue date, coming up in June this year. The ISSB aims to set a global baseline for companies to report their ESG-related disclosures. We asked Jana Yuchakova, Managing Director and Head of ESG International at Moro Sudali, what the ISSB means for companies. Uh, companies will no longer have an excuse <laughs> because right now I think you know the confusion around different sort of uh, frameworks, different guidelines, not, not you know no regulatories or requirements is giving companies a little bit of uh, you know leeway to to say well I don't know what to disclose, so I'm not going to disclose. Um, so I think that's that's one of the changes whereby you know investors and other stakeholders will be able to say no, well we now have one set of guidelines that you should potentially look into. What's really, I think, positive from my perspective is that ISSB is not trying to reinvent the wheel. Uh, They're basically going to be based on existing standards, um, SASB and TCFD, and obviously potentially with, uh, with you know, some improvements, but, but generally it's not a completely new set of guidelines. So that's also, I think, positive for companies who have started that SASB journey uh, and TCFD journey as well, because uh, I don't think it'll be, you know, they won't be required to completely reinvent their, their types of disclosures. Uh, but what changes will it bring? Look, I do think that it really depends on the market and on the individual companies as to what, um, which stakeholder is the key driver for whatever is happening. So what I mean by that is, for some companies, it's the regulators that need to step in and only then the change will happen. For some companies, it's the investors who uh, exert pressure. So for companies, uh, share register is quite dispersed and you don't have you know, a state or, or a family as, as one of the you know, major shareholders it is the institutional investors who are able to exert a bit more, more um, sort of influence um, and potentially drive some of these changes and basically say, well, if I don't see ISSB type of disclosure, I will vote against a director at the AGM, right? So it's, it's a different type of pressure than for a company that, let's say, is majority state-owned. Then we also have uh, potentially those companies for whom customers are the key stakeholders, uh, where we we are basically seeing that uh, customers, because they have to decarbonize, for example, uh, are very careful choosing who their supplier will be. Uh, And so, again, if these companies want to actually attract customers, right, and want to be the supply, um, want to provide the supply to them, they will have to attune to, again, and turn into all of these expectations. So... You know, it, it really, short answer to your, to your question is, it really varies and it really depends on who from the stakeholders is the key driver for, for change or for, actually for profitability. The ISSB is only one of a number of frameworks and standards that have come into the spotlight in recent years. And while that's good news, investors and companies alike lament a lack of harmonization and standardization of data and disclosure requirements. The lack of a one-size-fits-all type of approach is making life difficult for IR professionals as well. For Benoit Ribot, ESG Investor Relations Manager at Total Energies, when it comes to ESG, regulation is the top challenge facing IROs right now. Regulation, uh, it's getting more and more complicated for us to be aware of everything going on there. And so it requires a lot of work uh, and efforts. And we're a big company, so we, we have the means uh, for that. But honestly, I share the pain for smaller companies. 
Ribot also highlights two more challenges for IR professionals. Second, I would say it's data management. Data management is a challenge. There are so many reporting standards and uh, the uh, regulation when it comes to climate reporting, you know, reporting on scope one, scope two, scope three emission, methane in our case and so on, there is no harmonization of standards at the moment. So managing the data, disseminating the data and efficiently communicating the data to investors which have different expectations is clearly a challenge. The third challenge I could mention there is clearly activism as well. If you go back uh, a few years ago, uh, there were less uh, questions about uh, ESG. Now, uh, because of the evolution of the regulation and the CSRD, we have the Article 8, Article 9 funds uh, in Europe, investors have to have ESG engagement policies. And so therefore, uh, they are increasingly sending us uh, engagement uh, letters or we can talk about uh, shareholder resolution at AGM and so on. So the amount of questions and engagement and activism that we get from investors is, uh, is, is clearly growing. We also asked him what his top tips to peer IROs would be to overcome those hurdles. The first is really to well to structure very well the disclosure. If your ESG disclosure is well structured and you have a proper you know, ESG report, clear KPI, clear metrics, and you're reporting uh, annually on the evolution of these KPIs and and you know, the progress towards reaching the goals that you have set up, that's a really good start there. And as well, I would say that you have to remember that a lot of inv- some small investors might as well take a lot of your time now. And we're not even in a Pareto 80-20 rule here. It's probably one or two percent of your investors, which will probably use a third of your time. So you also have to remember that to focus on your key important investors, not to forget the other ones, but remember that it's not because you receive 10 engagement activities from small investors that that is representative of overall what the rest of your investors are thinking. So it's just important to stay focused on delivering your strategy and constantly exchanging uh, with uh, your investors. To hear more from ESG experts and IR professionals at the ESG Integration Forum Europe, watch the first episode of IR TV Now, a brand new show dedicated to hearing from IR professionals around the globe. The show is available on our website irmagazine.com. We will now go into a short break, but stay with us, as coming up next is James Beach in conversation with Naveen Chopra, Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer at Paramount Global, to talk about effective storytelling for institutional and retail investors. Don't go away. You're invited to the IR Magazine Think Tank West Coast on March 22nd an exclusive event for senior in-house IR professionals at listed companies. Join us in Palo Alto to share advice and make invaluable connections. Hear forecasts for inflation, interest rates, supply chains and geopolitical risk in 2023. Discover what metrics are most effective for targeting new investors. Learn how to stay ahead of the curve on ESG disclosures. Consider the best methods of preparation for a compelling earnings call. Speakers include portfolio managers from Parnassus Investments, Crane Shares, Woodline, Nuveen Funds and Centre Square Investment Management amongst others. Find out more and request an invite on irmagazine.com.
Welcome to IR Pulse by Public.com, the segment where we talk to IROs, analysts, and other executives about the evolution of IR. This month, I am delighted to welcome Naveen Chopra, Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer at Paramount Global. Welcome to the ticket, Naveen. Thanks, James. Pleasure to be here with you today. Wonderful. Thank you. To get started, please tell us about your role at the entertainment giant and how it relates to investor relations. Uh, absolutely. As uh, you pointed out, I'm CFO of the company, and in that role, I oversee all the company's traditional financial operations, as you would expect, including uh, things like corporate strategy, corporate development, and to uh, the topic at hand, uh, our investor relations function. And we have um, a small but mighty investor relations team that keeps uh, information flowing in both directions, meaning you know it helps us understand what's on the mind of investors, as well as uh, hopefully helping investors understand where we're taking the business. Personally, I spend... Uh, a fair amount of time with that team and combination of both investors as well as analysts trying to make sure that we're giving them current information as we possibly can about our strategic priorities and our execution against them. Uh, I often really think about our work there as trying to tell the story behind the numbers. Obviously, our analysts and investors have um, a lot of numbers through all of our public disclosure, but you know, sometimes... Uh, Really interpreting those numbers uh, requires uh, a little more storytelling, and that's um, what we endeavor to do. Absolutely. What kind of information is most in demand from your investors and analysts? Well, you know, investors would like more information. I think, you know, the, the topics that are most in the spotlight, not surprisingly, streaming. Um, people are very interested in our progress in terms of streaming growth, what are the economics of streaming, what's the path to profitability of streaming. But people are also increasingly focused on the uh, traditional side of our business and trying to understand you know, what is the, the future earnings and cash flow potential of that part of the business because it is still the, the source of, of profits for the company that are being reinvested in streaming growth. Can you tell us about your new corporate marketing campaign? focused on Paramount's popular content. What prompted the campaign and how do you think it will land with consumers and investors? Yeah, well, I think it's important to point out that this is less of a consumer-focused campaign. Obviously, there'll be some bleed over there, but um, it's really more of a, a, a corporate marketing and, and trade marketing campaign that is in, intended to highlight the, the synergy between uh, what I think of as our our content capabilities and our distribution footprint. You know, we like to say that we make popular content and we make content popular. And there's a lot of evidence of that. Whether you look at, you know, the success we had in the box office in 2022, we had six number one releases out of eight, by the way. Our broadcast network, CBS, has been the number one network in the U.S. market uh, now for 15 consecutive years. And Paramount Plus has been the fastest growing streaming service since uh, it launched back in 2021. Uh, and that's been driven by uh, some very successful titles like 1883, Halo, Criminal Minds, and the like. And, you know, those uh, stats, if you will, are really all uh, evidence of the fact that we, we really focus on giving consumers what they want from a content perspective. And then we use the combination of our theatrical, our linear, and our streaming channels to amplify those narratives. 
you know, we really want people to understand uh, just how mainstream and how popular this content is, which again is a function of both the quality of the content and the way that we go about creating it, but also what we do to market and distribute the content because, you know, one doesn't really work without the other. Absolutely. Just to delve deeper into that notion of storytelling, which is fascinating for our RO listeners, how do you effectively approach investor storytelling across institutional and retail investor audiences? I mean, are there any insights you can share into how your retail shareholders intersect with your subscribers? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question because I actually think of all investors, whether they're you know institutional or retail investors, first and foremost as customers. Anytime I, I meet with an investor, my first goal is to get them to believe in our product, our services, our content. Because uh, if they don't believe in those things, it's going to be very hard to persuade them to own our stock. So, you know, most of those conversations start by explaining our, our content strategy, making sure they understand the, the pipeline of content we have, our franchises, all of our creative capabilities, our global content presence, et cetera. And then move into explain the business model that surrounds all of that content. So, you know, oftentimes I'll I'll talk about major franchises, whether that's Top Gun or Mission Impossible or Paw Patrol or Sonic, and walk them through all the different ways in which we monetize that type of content, starting in those cases in the theatrical channel, then moving to streaming, consumer products, ad-supported services, et cetera. So, you know, they got to, you, you got to, at the end of the day, we are a content company. And so everything starts with our content and our content has to appeal to, to consumers in order for the stock to work for investors. That's a very interesting notion as well. You, you're not seeing a, a distinction between institutional and retail investors at all. It's just the customer base. I mean, in terms of, you know, how they trade and some of the kinds of metrics and things that they will look at, obviously there are going to be differences, but there is a, a prerequisite in all cases, which is, as I said, they have to believe in the product that you're selling, which in our case is our content. Absolutely. You've just announced Paramount's Q4 and full year earnings just a few weeks ago. What do you think resonated the most with the market? Yeah, I think there were really two big themes to our Q4 call. One was the incredible momentum we've continued to have in terms of streaming growth. Uh, and then two was what I refer to as the turn between 23 and 24. And let me explain both of those a little bit. You know, on the on the streaming side, Q4 was a, another spectacular quarter for, for Paramount Plus. We added uh, 10 million Paramount Plus subscribers and delivered about 81% increase in Paramount Plus revenue. Both of those results, I think, were much better than, than people expected and certainly better than many of our peers in the industry. So we think that that's uh, continued evidence of some of the things we've been talking about as it relates to the power of our content and what that can do to drive growth in our streaming services. But we also spent quite a bit of time explaining the trajectory of earnings and cash flow for the company, which is really about reminding our investors that 2023 is the year of peak investment in our streaming business. And therefore, once we get past that point in time, we expect to see material growth in both earnings and, and cash flow on a consolidated basis going into 24. And that's obviously a very important part of the story for us because the increases in streaming investment in 2021, 22, and now 23 
have put pressure on earnings. And in a world where people are focused on near-term earnings, uh, where they sometimes use valuation methodologies that sort of overweight near-term earnings, we think it's very important that people look forward and understand where the business is going from this point forward. Absolutely. I understand that there's uh, been an increased stake from a certain high-profile investor. Would you elaborate a little bit for us? Well, I assume you're uh, referring to uh, Berkshire Hathaway and, and Warren Buffett, who took a position in Paramount last year, and um, they've taken advantage of a couple opportunities to, to increase that, that stake. We obviously are uh, very happy to have them as, uh, as an investor in the company, and we think uh, you know, it signals the tremendous value potential of the stock. You know, Berkshire is obviously known as being a strong value investor. And um, we think that's very much a proposition that, that we offer to, uh, to other shareholders. Absolutely. And uh, Berkshire has a good reputation for very long-term investing as well. Uh, and on that engagement between long-term versus short-term investors, um, do you have a, a particular strategy that you apply to one or the other or both when it comes to the path of streaming profitability? Well, I think like most companies, we tend to focus on long-term value creation and therefore, you know, investors who invest with multi-year time horizon. But, you know, look, that being said, there's a lot of trading in the market from investors that are a little more short-term oriented and, you know, we don't take that for granted either. So, you know, we try to appeal to multiple constituents, if you will. It seems the goalposts on what investors expect you to deliver are always shifting in this highly competitive streaming market. How do you keep on top of those shifting expectations and how do you feel about your position today and in the future? Yeah, I think it's all about making sure that you have a broad enough perspective to know that you know what you see today is rarely permanent. We knew that at some point, the market's fascination with pure subgrowth and top line growth, which was dominating how streaming businesses were valued a year or so ago, would ultimately shift. Um, that wasn't a surprise to us. Obviously, we couldn't predict exactly when it would happen, but we knew it would happen. And that's a big part of the reason that from day one, we've been focused on building a scalable and uh, profitable streaming business. Obviously, that was going to require some investment, and we've been in that mode for the last couple of years. But we have not, you know, spent recklessly. We've been uh, very focused on what is the ROI of those investments, and ultimately, are we doing it in a way that is going to build a, a sustainable business that's going to create value for our shareholders? And that's why we did a lot of things uh, over the last couple of years, which at the time were somewhat contrarian. And in fact, people sort of accused us of not being committed to streaming or some, they use words like, you know, it's a company that's stuck in the middle because it's um, uh, sort of not giving up on the traditional media universe, et cetera. And that manifested in a number of key elements of our strategy, including uh, what we call the, the multi-platform approach, which is to use content across multiple distribution channels. Not everything has to be exclusive to our streaming service. So there's a lot of content, whether it's movies or sports or our broadcast television lineup that we use um, on streaming as well as traditional channels. You know, we were early in believing that um, advertising uh, was an important ingredient in the overall streaming business model. When we first uh, talked about that, there were plenty of folks who said, well, wait a second, you know, Netflix doesn't have advertising and consumers aren't going to put up with it. And, you know, that's sort of the old model. 
We similarly always believe that we could produce content and use it both on our own services as well as license it to third parties. And again, when we started doing that, we were critiqued for, you know, no, everything has to be exclusive to your own platform. Uh, you know, why are you still uh, arming some of your competitors with content? So, and there are many other examples of that, um, which I mentioned because it is a little ironic that today, if you listen to what many of our peers are are, say, are saying or look at, you know, what they're doing, whether that's Netflix or Disney or uh, Warner Discovery, they've all adopted similar strategies because I think it's now uh, an imperative for, for everyone in the industry to turn streaming in, into a, a business that does generate meaningful margins. And we knew from day one that the way to do that was to adopt some of these uh, strategies. So, you know, so we, we always knew that was going to be the case and um, the, the market has, has now moved in that direction. Fascinating and topical insights, Naveen. Thank you so much for sharing them with the ticker on behalf of Pulse by Public.com. Thanks for having me, James. Good to see you. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Ticker Podcast, brought to you by IR Magazine in partnership with our sponsor, Pulse by Public.com. Huge thanks for their support. You can learn more about Pulse at Public.com forward slash Pulse. Thanks also to everyone who took the time of being with us today. For our listeners, if you enjoyed the show, make sure you like and subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Until next time, thanks for listening. Yeah.